This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Welcome to For the Wild podcast, In the Field edition. I'm Ayana Young. In the Field is a bioregional, place-based storytelling series inspired by my journeys through the temperate rainforests of Cascadia. In this week's episode, we turn north to Sequepam territory, around Tehuel, so-called Williams Lake in south-central British Columbia, Canada. Nestled within the Caribou Mountains and the Fraser River watershed, this area is known as one of the birthing waters for salmon. I know. It's so beautiful here. It's like the natural village, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not like a monocrop tree farm plantation. This is the juniper. Yeah. Got two kinds, so we've got this prickly ones, low bush juniper. And these are so awesome. Mm-hmm. You just like grab a whole handful, pull them They're right so off. They're so gentle. Yeah. They're easy. Isn't that amazing? It's just hanging Abundant. with your... The other voice you hear in this recording is my dear friend, Nuskmata Jacinda Mack of the Sequepam and Newhulk indigenous peoples of present day British Columbia. My mother's line, my matrilineal homeland is in the Sequepam territory, Sequepam Uluk. And the most, I guess, recognizable place close to there is Williams Lake. So this is kind of south central British Columbia. You know, mostly pine forests, lots of lakes. The Fraser River runs central through there. So, of course, we have names for all of these places in our own language. There's lots of different plants and medicines that we still continue to harvest. For many years, Nuskmata has worked with Indigenous communities as an active organizer, researcher, and advocate on environmental protection issues, and continues to consult on mining and Indigenous rights and title in Canada today. At the time of this interview, Nuskmata was leading First Nations women advocating responsible mining, an organization monitoring proposed and existing mining operations in BC. It was 2018, four years after one of the most devastating mining disasters in world history struck her territory. In 2014, of course, was the Mount Pauli mine disaster, where 26 billion liters of mine waste was released into the environment, including into the headwaters of the the salmon of the Fraser River watershed. A lot of the work that I've been doing over the last few years has been focused on holding the mining industry to account, calling out Canada and the industry to clean up their practices and to enforce their own laws and, uh, you know, really focus more on community health and protection and prevention in a lot of this. So the area where the disaster took place is a place that we call Yuchnes and Chamequa, and that's the birthing water of the salmon. It's an interior rainforest in the mountains of the Caribou Mountains, and it's this really special sacred place. And it's uh, really been a difficult task for us to know that this is going to be part of the landscape forever, and this is part of our children's inheritance. And it's this work for future generations that we do collectively that really brings us together. The 26 billion liter spill of the toxic waste of copper and gold mining sparked a surge of activism among Nuskamata's community and environmentalists across BC, who have long fought for reforms and strengthened protections within the mining industry. Their cries for justice, however, have not been heard. It's been six years and Imperial Metals Mining Corporation has yet to pay a single cent 
in fines or charges. Shortly after the spill, the BC government allowed the mine to resume full operations. Not only this, but Imperial Metals was issued a permit to discharge almost 60,000 cubic meters per day of tailings effluent directly into Quaynell Lake. Taxpayers have shouldered $40 million to subsidize cleanup costs. Meanwhile, heavy metals live on in the bodies of the creatures, the community, and the waters, who continue to carry this toxic burden. We begin here, the front lines of a sacrifice zone, to shed light on the mining industry's ruthless exploitation of communities and ecosystems, and the BC government's green light to do so. And as we will find out, what has happened to Mount Polly is not an exception. It is the lawful rule in a region where there is little to no accountability for the theft of land and lives. definitely needs to be a shift in how the decision-making process happens. Right now, there's only a permitting, which basically means an allowance for the mining to take place. There's been a lot of talk by Canada and British Columbia around upholding the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And what we've seen is more just cherry-picking projects to make it look like they're upholding that, whereas, you know, there are so many different battles that are happening across the country and in British Columbia uh, to, to protect sacred places, to protect clean water. And this is for everybody. That's not just for Indigenous people. We all benefit from this work. And it's insane that we have to fight the government to protect clean water. It's insane that corporations call the shots around Indigenous rights and title by pressuring governments and all of the closed-door meetings that happen that people don't even know about how that impacts the future of everybody. There's a lot that can be done, and a lot of it comes down to, you know, local decision-making. It comes down to upholding human rights. It comes down to upholding Indigenous rights and title to make a radical shift away from the way things are, which is so outdated. You know, mining laws in British Columbia are largely from the 1850s and 60s, which is a completely different world of mining. There have been so many reports and studies and feedback, and all of this has given a direction on how this industry should be shaped, but it has to be put into action. To understand today's mining laws in B.C., we need to turn back the clock to the mid-19th century gold rush. At this time, early colonial legislation created a free-entry mining system for the thousands of prospectors traveling west. This allowed any person, 16 years of age or over, to obtain a free miner certificate, giving the holder the right to freely enter onto and stake a claim essentially anywhere, including private property and indigenous territory. Once a claim was staked, the holder obtained exclusive right to conduct mineral exploration, begin development, and collect the profits. It's shocking that apart from minor regulatory and permitting changes, this system largely remains the same nearly 170 years later. Though instead of picks and pans, today's mining companies wield a toolbox of hydraulic shovels and excavators nearly as tall as a football field is long. Notably, to acquire a mineral claim back then, free miners had to visit their proposed site and erect a physical claim post. Today, it's even less onerous. A prospector can simply go online and secure access to the subsurface rights in most parts of the province with the click of a button and a credit card. This and BC's tax subsidies help explain why the province is home to more exploration mining companies than anywhere else on Earth peel back the layers of Canada's green veneer to find that 1,300 mining corporations, 75% of all mining companies in the world, 
are headquartered in Canada. People don't see it and it's out of sight, out of mind, but they're getting bigger and bigger because the ore concentrations are getting uh, smaller and smaller. So you have to have a bigger mine to make money. And this lasts for thousands of years. There's mines that are still polluting and creating waste, acid rock drainage from the Roman times. And that's 2000 years ago. So it just never goes away. And when you think about how much that compounds in the ecosystem, then you kind of start to get an idea of the scale of one of these, one of these mines. And there are thousands of mines and many of them are abandoned because of the poor uh, laws surrounding protection. Everybody assumes that there are health and safety laws that are being enforced when they're not. So it just keeps going and going. And then when you add to that, the complexities of the social and cultural and health impacts that aren't necessarily directly tied to these mines, you start to get an idea of the giant that this industry is. Mining is, it feels like the secret untold story. It's the biggest story you never heard. It's the biggest story you never heard. It so is. And I, I can just say like, I came up to this part of the world because I was mortified by old growth logging. Once I started walking down that logging road, the metaphorical logging road, and then I started to see logging is bupkis. Logging is pennies. Logging is to make accessible for the mines. Yeah, logging's just the brushing before the drills come in. It's just clearing a road. So you're like, well, well, let's make some money off of that so that we can get to the real money. And, you know, you're talking about these nuclear facilities. Mine sites are the same. Like, people think that, you know, once the mine's closed and reclaimed, that everything's okay. And it's like, no, these sites like Mount Holly Mine, water isn't even being treated now, and it needs to be treated forever. Forever. Who's going to take care of that? Imperial metal shares have dropped from over $11 a share to like 60 cents because of the disaster. If you have a disaster, your whole company is going to go under. It's such a predatory model. The impacts are forever. You need perpetual water treatment with nobody. Who's going to be responsible for that? The people who live there are the ones who are going to bear the cost, which is usually cancer, social breakdown. Uh, folks who are trying to sell their properties after the disaster couldn't get any, nobody wants to live in a contamination zone, right? So you have all of these other ripple effects that aren't gauged in an environmental assessment or a corporate model because they're just completely discounted. And the money, you know, they don't even have to put money up beforehand. No. It's like, oh, we'll take care of it if something happens. Trust us. If you connected mining up with all of the other industries and how they're connected, the first way that they're all connected is it's all part of this extractive colonial system based on growth. You have mines that provide all of the raw materials to run these other industries for creating and building heavy equipment, right, to do other big extractive processes. Mm. Mining depends on other extractive industries to operate, like uh, hydroelectric dams to run their big, super gigantic shovels, you know, that are as big as a building, to put them into these gigantic 220-ton dump trucks, you think of a five-ton truck and then think of a 220-ton truck. So everything's super scale. We've got these gigantic rubber tires. The rubber comes from, you know, tropical rainforest. The amount of diesel that goes through in a day on one mine site. So you've got fracking and you've got pipelines. That's a connection with pipelines. You've got them in the headwaters. So then you're also adding to the, uh, the threat and the sickness that fish farms are also putting in the water on salmon. And so... All of these things are intertwined into this super extractive, industrial, crazy brain, gold fever. You know, mining is at all costs and underwrites almost every other law in British Columbia, especially because it was the reason that British Columbia was colonized was because of the gold rush. British Columbia was, say that again. British Columbia was founded because of the gold rush. The gold rush brought in the people, it brought in the road building, it brought in the infrastructure, it brought in, you have the miners. You have the saloons. There was so much organized crime that was brought in that became the basis for Canadian government in British Columbia. So this relationship, this colonial relationship with mining goes back to the very foundation of the colonization of our lands. Introduce smallpox to devastate the complex trade networks of the Indigenous people because traders were coming in through Indigenous territories and having to pay tariffs because of the Indigenous law. And it's documented by academics and others using government logs that smallpox was deliberately introduced and that this genocide was an act of biological warfare against Indigenous people, thinking that it would kill all of us. 
to eradicate this Indian problem from the land. But all it did is it took all the strongest people and became the new bloodlines for what is now rising up in these indigenous renaissance, who these young people who are out there that haven't gone to residential schools, haven't been scooped up, are relearning their languages and reconnecting with the land. And knowing that the land is still there, our land is still here, the land hasn't gone away. And what is in the imagination, the colonial mindset, is that Indigenous people have been displaced from our lands. And there were so many laws to keep us off of our lands to break that connection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The residential schools were to, you know, kill the Indian, save the man. I think, like, within our very genetic code, it's just in us. Our bodies are made of this land. That's where we're receiving our connection to this land. And, you know, for people who have never felt that connection or have never had a spiritual connection to the place, simply can't understand that. And they have no uh, idea of who they are or where they are. This is the system that we're having to deal with. I'm speaking English. The other languages that I know before English is French, Spanish, and Portuguese. I'm saying I just need to learn Dutch and I'll have all of the five biggest <laughs> colonizing languages on the world covered. But I still can't speak fluently my own languages, but I'm learning. And so the more and more I learn out of my language, the more beautiful it's revealed to me, the beauty of this world and the power. And so the more that I learn my language, the more I'm connected to the land that I'm from. So it's all these different fronts of what's going on and trying to navigate through it while trying to decolonize my own life and heal my own life because I'm still dealing with the impacts of, you know, the colonization that happens around me. My mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother all went to residential school. We're still dealing with that in our families. Our communities are still dealing with that and trying to heal from that. But we're aware of it now. Mm -hmm. We've named it. One aspect I've savored most from the journey of recording in the field has been to share traditional food with people from their homelands. Whether harvesting berries with Wanda or filleting a salmon with Dune on the banks of the copper, each taste has been a conduit for tender, joyful connections that contain the marrow of deep traditions and foodways. These moments have also given me the opportunity to get into some let's say, passionate kitchen table chats over a very large cup of coffee. Ready to, we've, been, we've been rumbling, but I want to go back to the gold rush mentality because yeah. most people, they've heard about the gold rush. Yeah. They have some romantic idea. There's so many places I've seen. Gold Rush Museum. Gold Rush. Look at the cute little town. Of, yeah. Like Old Sacramento. Oh, Old Sacramento. Like the Sierras. The Sierra foothills. It's all this really cutesy, and it's it's sold as a tourist attraction. Yeah, yeah, it's this totally skewed revisionist history. The insta wealth, the American dream. It's that gold fever, and the gold fever is the sickness. Actually, I was writing something down the other night. I was flowing. I know I was late. I was like way too tired, <laughs> and I was thinking about how. I, oh, I started putting this uh, presentation together, and it was about how gold fever, imagining a future Wikipedia entry for gold fever, um, in the future that it becomes known as the human extinction virus. Gold fever. That insatiable greed. Um, that that's what gold fever really, truly is. And that gold has been responsible for, you know, more war and destruction in the history of human existence than anything else. Look at the connections between organized religion and the pursuit of gold and the military might that these, like the Catholic Church, the Crusades, the, the, the Rococo period after, you know, the discover, you know, so-called discoveries of North and South America, all of the gold and silver that came out of South America and the indigenous people who were sacrificed for it. You know how they have blood diamonds? It's like dirty gold, dirty gold, dirty gold. It's all tainted. I 
think, I think um, people are really unaware that it's still happening. When you think, oh, well, what does gold mining look like in 2018? Yeah, it's huge, huge, huge machines. That's one thing, what it looks like. It looks like, you know, ridiculously large mega. Oh, yeah. Super scale. Super scale. Super scale extraction. And people have never been on a mine site, but they've seen lots of pictures of, you know, placer mining, historic placer mining. So people really have no idea of the scale. They have no idea that most of it is waste management. It's just a big waste site. They're, you know, decapitating mountains and... And, and, it's, and the, the waste sites, these companies right. can bankrupt once they've extracted. And it's like, oh, now we're going to walk away from yep. cleaning up the waste. Okay, you have toxic bullshit in a open pit of plastic that doesn't last forever. It rains. Yeah. Weather yeah. happens. Erosion. Erosion. They're not accounting for climate change in any of their plans. And now they're wanting to go into deglaciated areas to mine. And you know what was so frustrating is I've gone around to so many people, well, why don't Sam come back? And scientists, we, we don't know. We don't, yeah, we don't know. Yeah, we don't. Oh my God. What do we know? Okay, we know mining, we know yeah. ocean acidification, yeah. we know oil fills, climate change, glacial melt. We, it's like we agricultural data, and human waste runoff. How much data do we have to collect? That's yeah, that's to validate. that's totally the other piece is just like death by studying. Like it's like well, we'll get another study. It's like you don't need another study. We don't need another study. Oh my god, that just drives me crazy because I'm just like. You know what your answer is. We had all kinds of traditional use studies and, you know, all of the interviews around salmon just to document. It wasn't that people didn't know that. It was just that it needed to be documented in this Western colonial whatever, right? And so people were like, we need data. We need scientifically proven whatever. And it's like, do you really? Or do you already know what the answer is, but you're just afraid to actually take a position on it? Yeah, well, we miss getting baseline data a long time ago. Yeah. So it's okay, fine. Let's get this. Let's get baseline data. But we know yeah. already there are multiple reasons why the salmon aren't coming back. Yes, and we're going to wait until we can show a proven decline from this. Why are we not coming out with precautionary approach to make sure that we're doing no harm first of all, and then figure out what the impacts are? Drives me bonkers. <laughs> People don't want to be the bad guy. And they don't want to believe that what they're doing or the industry or whatever's putting food on their table is harming anybody. Because I think people generally want the same things in life. They want to be safe and secure and be able to provide for their families. And when you put a whole lot of guilt on the table for destroying the watershed and our way of life, they become very, very defensive. And that's the fragility piece that comes in from having such privilege forever. You know how much that hurts my feelings? It's like... Do you know how much death and you are murdering entire ecosystems? Like the whole thing is in collapse, like you were saying, right? And it's just like coming to terms with that reality is just too much, I think, for some people. And they just don't want to believe that they're part of the problem because they, they can say, well, well, we really believe in this, in this science. We believe in that the leadership at this company would never do that. They're good people. It's not the people, it's not the individual workers, it's the whole systemic piece that is just completely messed up. I've thought back on this conversation many times, meditating on the thorny question of our individual responsibility and how we navigate and make choices within the lethal, anthropocentric logic of this system. At times, I imagine the beast of resource extraction as a swirling vortex, a spiraling, thrashing gyre so insurmountably large that it might swallow the earth whole. And yet, I still want to ask, what would free us to be and act within the truth of this urgent time, to be unmoving in our politic, even in the eye of the storm? A small piece of this, for me at least, has been to invite the hard-to-hear truths into my head and heart, so that they begin to move and make home in my being. These places are the last living libraries on earth. Mm. Where I live, it's a miracle to see a salmon. And I live on one of the most, the most promising river in all of California for coho. Where I live, used to have salmon so thick you could walk across on their back. 
huge salmon that are the mm-hmm. size of men holding them up. Okay. That was not long ago. There's less than 4% of all old growth redwoods left. There are hardly any salmon. I mean, yeah. we know this extinction crisis. We know this, but to see it and to see the insanity and to be with Dune in the Copper River Delta, he said he hardly caught any silvers and the kings didn't come back. And to hear Ernestine talk about the abundance of Southeast Alaska, you know, because she's mm-hmm. from Southeast, and to see how that abundance is literally being choked. What I saw, one of the things that I noticed when I went to Alaska was that I feel like where they are now, they're just starting to feel the pinch of the impacts mm-hmm. like from, you know, where they are, mm-hmm. is where we were here 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. So... I, I tell them like you have you have a buffer because you're so far north, but not you're not you're not yet. But it's still you know unless you make some radical changes or, or just halt things, put things on pause for now. And that thirty years isn't going to take you thirty years. That thirty years is going to take you probably five years. Oh yeah, the way things are going with the extreme fluctuations in the weather and the glaciers, mm-hmm. I give them ten years. And also the drought. Like, people go, oh, California is the wildfire state with the drought. Okay. No, 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 no. The fires through BC, there's drought in the northmost rainforest in Alaska. The creeks are drying up. The salmon can't get up the creeks because there is no water. This is not compartmentalized to one southern state. Wake up. Someday people understand Despite the continued pollution of the Fraser River watershed, it still supports more salmon runs than any other system left on the planet, stretching 1,375 kilometers southwest from a dripping spring in the Rocky Mountains to the Pacific Ocean. This river sustains seven species of salmon, rainbow trout, giant sturgeon, and more than 300 species of migratory and resident birds. The dynamic, bountiful river basin has sustained First Nations community for thousands of years. Some of its traditional names include Latako in the Dakel language and Stalo in the Halk Omelem language. When I visited Nuskmata's home, we walked down to a particular spot along the river. Surrounded by native edible plants, this area, now frequented by tourists, had once been an ancient fishing ground for her people. Yeah, the river is the thing that connects us all here, you know, within this this whole watershed, this bioregion of all the tributaries, all of the salmon, all of the interconnected species, you know. I think that's probably why I feel so grounded in my work to come here, because it's back to that center for me. I followed Nuskamata further out onto the rocks where her family used to catch salmon from the crystalline, free-flowing waters. As I sat there, the water braiding with the rocks, Nuskamata's stories reminded me that we are all vitally connected by the intricate lattice of water's chosen path. Downstream, people in Vancouver dine on fresh seafood, watching ships move across the wide mouth of the Fraser towards the ocean. While upstream, a community wrestles with the risk of drinking, bathing, and eating from contaminated waters. And this is something that we had said 20 years ago here. Ugh. You know, like when I was a teenager, late 80s, early 90s, we were told then, don't eat the eggs from the salmon <laughs> that you catch. This was, you know, over 20 years ago. And we were like, why? Well, and I said, because of the mercury contamination, it settles in the eggs. Okay, so we can't eat the eggs, but these are the eggs that are going to become the salmon. So are we, should we even be eating the salmon if we can't be eating the eggs? And so you think of the amount of contamination and the bioaccumulation, right? In not only in the salmon, but everything, you know, the salmon dye goes back to the earth. What is the toxic load of the land? Nothing is assessed in a cumulative way. So you have on the Fraser River watershed, you have mines dumping waste, you have pulp mills dumping waste. You have partially treated sewage that's dumped into the river. All the agricultural fertilizer runoff. And then you have all the runoff within the larger watershed from um, overlogging and clear cuts, which contributes to warmer waters, which is harbor on salmon. 
the Fraser River is just like one gigantic sewage pipe to the ocean. And how is that impacting other species? Like somebody had posted something on online yesterday of all of these birds that just dropped dead on this beach. Mm. A whole bunch of them had just fallen out of the sky. And then they don't talk about how the exploration companies also pollute. Oh, yeah. They break down through groundwater. You know, you have all of your um, your waters and your lubricants and whatever to run the drills. That often gets down into the wells and that are capped, that are there self-monitoring. Mining is all self-monitoring. So it's like ripe, ripe conditions for corruption. And, and what about all the wealthy people in Vancouver who want to catch their salmon on the weekends? I mean, yeah. like... Do they just they not know? Like what, I, I what about the so. wealthy white people in the towers of Vancouver in their yeah. glass buildings? Yeah. The Fraser River goes through there, right? Yeah, it does. I think part of it is that they don't know or they, they don't have an immediate connection to it. That's the storytelling piece to <sighs> get people connected into how they're being impacted. So you're really passionate about Kinder Morgan. Well, you should hear about mining. Because there are there are thousands of mining sites in BC. This is one pipeline. You need to learn about the next piece. When I was down at the Protecting Mother Earth conference and listening to all of the conversations around getting off of fossil fuels and you know renewable energy, I'm like, you have to clean up mining because there's more mining that's going to be required for rare earth materials and more copper. And like I'll tell people, you're being impacted whether you understand it or not. Can you show me a good trick? Show me some magic. Can you pull the whole world from my ear? I hate how the best things keep disappearing like Leonard and Bowie and the ice caps here. And we're left with this. When we find a good thing, we can hold on to it. The golden age, it sure was great. The sun was so pretty, we couldn't look away. Now I can't see my brother, my sister, or mother. The rose-colored glasses of my own news feed And the sermon I'm given in this new algorithm It's falling on deaf ears cause the choir conferences and beyond and commercials and the future and techno fixes and the <laughs> renewable energies it, okay that is literally i see it i'm like oh my gosh this is just the next wave of industry yeah. this is just it's the next clothes. wave of industry yeah. of factories of yeah. it's not less energy intensive no and people think oh it's a solar panel somehow that's less energy intensive to create or yeah. there's no oppressed people yeah. that are having to make the thing that water is all over the world being poisoned. But, um, and that's just a deeper level of like this, this, this false resilient community being sold to even good activist people. Like I, I've, yeah. I've interviewed so many amazing activists. 
that talk about energy freedom. Yeah, and they talk about no, just transition. Just it's transition. like yeah. But where We're, is the mining talking about just right. transition? That's right. When I was down, when I gave my talk down in this um, Kali, I had mentioned about that and saying like you're missing a piece of the conversation if you're not Huge. talking about mining. I mean, of course, forestry underpins it all because that's what clears the roads. But you've got your big hydroelectric dams, right? You've got Site C, which a lot of people are saying is, you know, they're just going to sell off the water or use it for fracking, which would make sense where it is because that's in the big fracking zone up there. And then you have your fish farms and then you have your pipelines, right? And then the mining and then agriculture on top of that because you've got to think of all the runoff, right? So within just the Fraser watershed, you've got all of these super industrial practices that are just not being considered together in one conversation no you know uh, people are wanting to address transition where are you on mining or is that even on your radar because how if it's it not just, yeah how is it a just transition if your land is being poisoned exactly so that somebody else somewhere else can have a yep. just transition all of those those huge tires you know they're like seventy five thousand dollars each we don't have rubber in our territory this is coming from the jungles junk you know, where is the fuel coming from to run those big mega trucks? Probably being fracked somewhere from somewhere. Um, you know, what about all of the the big jumbo hydroelectric shovels? Well, they're coming from big electric dams. The forestry cleared the roads to get them in there, and all the water from the watersheds, but from all the headwaters, is where all the big gold mines are because of the way the geology works. So all of this is going into the river. That impacts the salmon. That impacts the uh, killer whales. So it's just ripple effect constantly. There is no way to continue getting out of it. I mean, unless you want to start eating like Petri dish food, which is the direction we're going. Going down to Southern California, where a lot of my family lives, there's million dollar houses right next to an oil rig. Wow. You know, people like are breaking out with asthma and like have all these issues Like, uh, you literally, you have your million dollar fake looking Tuscan mansion <laughs> with this offshore drilling and then an oil patch that was wetland. Why would you have asthma? Like, what is meant by a clean energy future if it necessitates a permanently polluting, predatory industry and moreover requires that industry to expand many times over to meet consumer demands? We must be clear that this new industrial revolution, painted green, carries existential consequences for the millions of at-risk species of Earth, ourselves included. Replacing the world's 1.2 billion vehicles with those powered by batteries, would in part require an 8,840% increase of current global lithium production. And by 2035, the current global demand for copper, an essential material in electric systems, is estimated to spike by 43%. It will be areas of rich natural resources, from the high-altitude lithium reserves in the Andes Mountains, to the deep-sea mineral deposits in the waters of Papua New Guinea that become tomorrow's sacrifice zones for a techno-utopian Green New Deal. My hope is that this conversation will challenge us all to broaden the scope of a just transition to include all communities of life on the front lines of metal and mineral mining and all those downstream. What could our purpose and identity become outside of the imperialist framework of consumption and domestication. And this has been the conversation, this has been the battle with Indigenous people since contact. Is this completely different worldview around how to live in this world well. In Potlatchin culture on the Northwest Coast, you would only ever acquire wealth or more than what you needed to redistribute it to the community. You would never acquire personal wealth for your own personal gain. That would be breaking the law and like actual physical wealth. It was metaphorically held in the potlatches of how many times you fed the people. That's where your status came from, was how much you provided for your wider community. So that's written in our laws and within our language. So we've got these completely different worldviews, this completely different spiritual connection where- There is no, like, it's no really spiritual hard. connection in no. the dominant. Yeah. I was thinking about this the other day and I was like, I've got to write this stuff down. When I was pregnant with my son, I didn't do this consciously, but I was eating as much traditional food as I could. Mm. And so his body is made up of salmon and deer meat and, mm. you know, medicines mm. and berries and everything that is here while I was pregnant. I was drinking soapberry juice every day. And so mm. 
our bodies are physically made up of this land and it's the same genetic code as it always has been. So that our physical, vibrational, spiritual, however you want to describe it, connection to this very land, this land actually built our bones and our blood and yes. our flesh. It always shocked me when I was younger that people could just grow up somewhere and then just move away forever and mm -hmm. never come back. Mm -hmm. It's just not in my worldview to mm -hmm. do that. It's like, this is home forever and it always will be for my bloodline. We're not going to leave. We're not going to go anywhere. And that's been the whole, that's what the Indian problem is. The Indian problem, they actually call it the Indian problem in Canada, is that we survived. <laughs> We're still here and that we still are maintaining this connection with the earth. And, you know, I was thinking about it last mm. night of how to describe it. Mm. And I was thinking of a play, you know, maybe something that kids could do. If you had this indigenous woman that represents the earth mother, mm -hmm. the mother, you know, and her basket is filled with everything that you would ever need, you mm. know, with your food and the clean water and all of mm -hmm. the ceremonies that keep you connected to the land. We still have a lot of that. A lot of it is yeah. in the hospital. A lot of it still remains. There's ways of regaining that knowledge through ceremony and through, you know, just being on the land itself and learning yeah. the language. It's all in there. So you talk about these living libraries mm -hmm. and within indigenous cultures, the language and the ceremonies and the knowledge of the land and the food that we eat gives us information and access to these libraries as well. So when we can't go out on the land because there's mining and there's no trespassing and no hunting signs everywhere, roads are gated and it becomes harder and harder to maintain that taste for the land. I have a niece that came out um, from Ontario, born and raised in Ontario her whole life. She's Nicole, came to Belacula for the first time. She doesn't like anything. There's like five things on earth that she likes to eat. Mm -hmm. She doesn't like anything. She's super, super fussy. Mm -hmm. She tried deer meat for the first time and her eyes lit up like a Christmas tree. She couldn't get enough of it. And I was like, that's your body recognizing what you were made up of. It was just instant recognition. You know, they want to learn how to hunt. They really mm -hmm. want to learn how to hunt. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, well, you need to come here in the fall, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we're harvesting certain things. It's like, we can't do that till fall time. It's that connection with the land because it's like we know that we're still in the place, our birthplace, and we still have this connection mm -hmm. in that because we have this close relationship with the land, even though it's harder and harder to maintain, we know that at a very deep level. We as Indigenous people descend from the strongest of the strong of our ancestors. Yeah. So that blood is running through us, and it's not even a choice. Their job was to survive. Just yeah. make it through, just survive, get through this, survive through the smallpox, you know, the genocide that happened. So, yeah, like, I think what happened is you just concentrated all the warrior survival blood. You know, you think of after in Europe, after the plagues went through, what the state of society was at that time, right? The sickness, the trauma. So that's what our communities have gone through, you know, and then the residential schools, the boarding schools oh. in the United States. The 60s scoop in Canada, you know, forced sterilization, medical experimentation, um, all of these things is just like all oh, thing after thing, and now the big thing in Canada um, is you know the, the amount of children that are in care. There are more children that have been taken into foster care um, than were ever in residential schools. Do you think the foster schools are just like you know two point yeah, residential foster schools? Care, yeah, it, because it's still this patriarchal system where the underlying belief is that Indigenous people aren't truly human, aren't truly civilized don't know how to be parents, mm -hmm. are totally messed up because we're just degenerate. Criminals. Oh no, this is, this is totally systemic. It's really exciting when I see young people who mm -hmm. are really stoked to learn their language and they're speaking mm -hmm. out against colonization mm -hmm. and they're doing these amazing creative things mm -hmm. to say, you know what, I don't buy that bullshit mm -hmm. story anymore. Mm -hmm. And it stops with me. This trauma, this cycle, this, mm -hmm. you know, sickness stops with me mm -hmm. because I'm doing everything I can to learn. And so you see mm -hmm. this people organizing. Mm -hmm. That's really exciting because that's what needs to happen, right? Mm -hmm. And to get these young people fired up where they're raised, mm -hmm. where it's just not mm -hmm. even acceptable. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't even entertain mm -hmm. the idea. Mm -hmm. Like I asked my son when he was going to school here in Williams Lake, because I went to high school in Williams Lake, and it was very, very racist when I went. Mm -hmm. And I asked him how the racism was, and he was just like, oh, I don't know. If if there was something directed directly at me, he was like, I wasn't really aware of it. I'm like, well, you'd be aware of it. Wow. <laughs> My mm. son is the first generation whose parents didn't go to residential school. I'm the first generation wow. that didn't go. Wow. He's the first generation whose parents didn't go. The work that Indigenous grandmothers are doing are coming from this intense place of love. That's why it's powerful. That's why they're powerful. 
you know, it's it's a love story. And when I was in Alaska, I was saying, you know, like every love story, there's heartache. Mm-hmm. It's this underlying love. People are like, don't you ever want to quit? I'm like, yeah, like every day. <laughs> like every single day I want to quit. And I heard this one this one speaker and she was saying that people would ask her that she goes oh I do but I I do I quit every single day at five o'clock I quit (laughs) and then I'm with my family and I'm doing the things Mm -hmm. that feed me and then I start again the next day knowing that I can quit at five o'clock every day otherwise I would burn out and go Mm -hmm. crazy you're having to fight on so many different levels you're having to experientially live it you can't get away from it you drive down the road and and oh, you, yeah. You know, it's, I'm driving on the freeway and I'm like, oh, there's a mine truck. There's a mine truck. Yeah. That one's got, you know, the big rod for the rod mill that's going to crush up the rock. Oh, that one is hauling concentrate back to Vancouver. That's a big piece of mining equipment going up. I see it everywhere. I see the word capitals N-O-W. I think notice of work. That's mining. You know, <laughs> like I see stuff everywhere and I'm just like, Ugh. I can't unsee it once you know, right? This machine is broken we are just moving through the motions but you can't tell the ocean when the tides are coming and it's coming in to be done you might not be out there at the front of that march getting arrested but you're going door to door in the community getting signatures for a petition and you're like looking after the kids while there's a meeting going on or you're slogging through government meetings Mm -hmm. or doing public events like there are lots of different strategies they're all threads of the same fabric Mm -hmm. within indigenous communities too you have people who think that oh if you go to a government meeting then you're a sellout they're being played in this divide and conquer. And they're like, oh, we are so colonized. And it's like, well, then maybe we need to address that. What solutions are you bringing? You know, and getting over this whole internalized colonization, internalized divisions within the communities, that's a really key piece. And, you know, we're talking about free prior informed consent, moving into this age of consent now, away from consultation. What are we doing in our Indigenous nations to ensure true decision-making within the nations? And I was asked the other day by CBC Radio, you know, well, isn't that going to put a halt to every single industrial project out there? And I just said, that's really oversimplifying uh-huh. it. That's fear mongering. And there's a lot of work that has never been done. And so now it's time to get down to work. And now Indigenous people have fought their way court after court battle. All of these things, getting our own agencies to take care of our own children, to take care of our own health services, all of this stuff. That is all trench work, you know? We're in this position that we're in because it was bought and paid for with the blood, sweat, and tears of every generation after that's had to deal with the trauma and the ongoing colonization with this gold rush that never ended. It just changed clothes, just changed appearances. It's got a new storefront, you know? They just keep such a low profile and they try to. Yes, very low very profile. Very low profile. You won't see Imperial mm-hmm. Metals Mount Polymine with any social media platform. You won't see them doing anything other than working directly with government and directly within the industry mm-hmm. itself. Yeah. They don't reply to anything. They don't need to engage with the public because they get all of their permissions and authorizations and permits from the government. Fossil fuel companies, they have social media. They're hooking up with Coca-Cola. Oh, yeah. They're out. They're sponsoring events bp for instance like i saw a commercial on youtube for bp and they had all these famous musicians and they're like bp and they're like singing you know and they're like bp the way to the future whatever go to disneyland right an old gold mine you know like new gold mine yeah mom is the word when after the mount poly disaster happened the government of british columbia wanted the first nations to sign non-disclosure agreement oh gosh the government on behalf of the mining company and so like you have right now british columbia people going what consent do you know how much time that's going to take 
Reconciliation, do you know how much that's cutting into our bottom line? And so everything has to operate at the speed of money. They want to do it in like a year, two years or less for these major, oh, yeah. major projects yeah. that couldn't totally wipe out entire populations of human and non-human alike. Talk about no concept of deep time. And in British Columbia, one of the big things is this whole system called professional reliance. So rather than having ministries that are responsible for you know, maintaining the integrity and making decisions around environmental protection, like the Ministry of Environment, um, has turned over all monitoring of the water coming off the mine site, all monitoring of the impacts over to the mine. And then they're like, oh, well, yeah, we, we checked in with them and it looks legit, so we're going to go with that. These 2,000-plus abandoned mines, many are the headwaters of rivers, what will it take for the BC government, the U.S. government, what is it going to take to first get these companies or somebody, somebody's got to be cleaning this up. Yeah. What are we going to do about that? Some of the things that are happening right now in the different channels and partners that I work with is there's the Indigenous Guardians initiatives that mm-hmm. are happening in different communities around doing all of that monitoring, being part of the compliance, being part of the land use planning having areas that are designated as indigenous protected areas where there are just no-go zones, right? And so that's where I think it's really important for people to be engaged locally. And what I've seen from after the Mount Pauli disaster was that local people became so discouraged and angered and silenced or just completely ridiculed or harassed. Mm-hmm. Everything that was happening on the land, in the community, in the public, online... It just completely traumatized people, and people withdrew to protect themselves. The aftermath of the Mount Polly mine disaster reminds us of the toxic social and environmental legacy left behind on the mining industry's destructive path. An expert panel predicted that there will be two such tailing pond failures every 10 years in BC, like ticking time bombs threatening the heart of living, breathing ecosystems. Nuskamata warns that constant vigilance and community oversight is required over not only active, abandoned, and decommissioned sites, but also new sites in the exploration phase, on the frontier of mining expansion. While traveling in so-called Haynes, Alaska, I witnessed the turning gears of this predatory model, as Constantine Metal Resources, a Canadian mining company, invaded the pristine headwaters of the Chilkat River to quantify the copper, zinc, gold, and silver content of a mountain. This new mine site, in the unceded territory of the Chilkat Clinket, could begin operations shortly, despite a majority opposition from Native and non-Native Alaskans. And the road into Haines, for the last two years, totally been reconstructed. I mean, they are chopping down the mountains, and they're like, oh, for the tourist. Really? Not for the gigantic haul trucks? Not for the gigantic shipping, you know, out the ore? It's the bald eagle sanctuary. Most bald eagles anywhere. Most grizzly bears in the continent in the Kluani right there. I mean, this area is just unreal. And they're just chopping, chopping, chopping the mountains. Grinding, grinding, grinding for the road. Big excavator, boom, dunking these excavators in the effing river, creating new road on the river. The Department of Fish and Wildlife, who's supposed to be protecting the salmon, allowed for this road construction during the peak months of salmon spawning to make the road for tourists. I'm like, this is bullshit. And Mm. and they have so many machines. Massive, massive project, you know, millions of dollars, obviously. I'm just like, oh my gosh. Once the road is in, it's it's classic project splitting. This is what they do in mines, where they'll just incrementally get bigger and bigger and bigger beyond the original footprint of what they ever proposed to get the approval. About a 10-year life, 15-year life, it's going to provide this many jobs or whatever, right? And then incrementally, it gets bigger and bigger to the point that it, it's well beyond the capacity or the design like Mount Holly, and it, it bursts. Yeah, it's maddening. It's maddening. I, I've seen the road. I know what you're talking about. The Haines, yeah. I've driven it. If a mine ever comes to your town, do you maybe you want to look at all other communities that have had this and try to see what's happened to them to see if it's a good idea for your community. There's no way that your community will not go down the same path. Yeah, your community will not be the exception. 
how far will we go to mine ourselves out of the climate crisis in order to maintain a luxury-driven, consumerist culture? Are we willing to sacrifice more of the Earth's remaining intact ecosystems and watersheds, still turning with the primordial hum of life in the name of modernity? Inhabiting these questions, in part, demands an honest investigation into the true cost of our individual material footprint. While I hold and acknowledge the larger, systemic forces at play in contemporary waste regimes, it's also my sense that we shouldn't abandon the thoughtfulness of our material experiences wherever possible. When we fail to acknowledge our interconnectedness, we've cast not only the weight of our material burden, but also the psychic burden onto the affected people and places and creatures. So I invite you to feel into your embodied experience of the metals, fossil fuels, papers, plastics, that pass through your hands on a day-to-day basis. Is there a way to remain effective in the world while drastically reducing or abstaining from such consumption? How can we reclaim the concept of abundance from the grip of mass resource extraction and return it to the arms of the earth? It's facing this mythology, this romanticized gold. There's no reason to mine any more gold. It's all for vanity. It's all for, uh, most of it's for jewelry. You know, if people can just stop buying gold, even if you have gold, just stop buying it. And be aware of your language around gold. You know, oh, we'll treat you like gold. It's the gold standard. It's, you know, where it's this highest value and it's like, Actually, clean water is worth a heck of a lot more. Can you imagine how our world would be transformed if everybody had access to clean water on the whole planet? If everybody had clean water, how that would change the world. This is the most fundamental thing other than air. And so when we as Indigenous people are being criminalized for wanting to protect clean water that protects everybody, it's so outrageous. But it's the accepted norm in this industrial, military, capitalistic complex that we're in. So shifting these systems is huge, huge, huge work. But it's doable. We have to believe that we can do it. But be skeptical enough that it motivates us to take action in our own lives. Mm -hmm. We can't just wait for someone else to do it. Because everything Mm -hmm. that we don't do, the burden gets passed on Mm -hmm. to our children. Mm -hmm. So what path are we clearing for them? What work are we doing to prepare for them? That's why telling the truth is so revolutionary. Not subscribing to this murder culture and actually working from a place of love is revolutionary. And people have like, love, how corny is that? And it's like, if you don't truly understand what I'm saying, that's the problem. And if you haven't found your love story with the land yet, that's what we need to help you find. Mm -hmm. Because that's what's going to shift know. And I think also just thinking about my unborn grandchildren, that is a huge motivator for me. Mm -hmm. What am I going to, what is my inheritance going to be that I'm building up now for them? You know, so it's life work. And sometimes just go stop and go pick berries. (laughs) Go to the river. Go to the river. This tea was delicious. Oh, good. Uh, is it, I think it's balsam. I know the name in Sequep, it's, it's Milan, which means the medicine bark, the medicine tree. I love this one. I wish I would have known. When was the last time you walked in a forest? When was the last time you climbed the tree? Surrounded by people, talking about the land. So what I'm 
running through the hills, dancing on hoodoos, catching swell, fishing trout early spring, harvesting the goodies, doing our thing, watching out for that sewer, covering our tracks, picking what could get them, sharing us a laugh by the river. Forced them all to go was good that pulled the land like a four-leaf globe. We all want to be healthy, we want to be happy, we want, you know, uh, clean water and food and to have an enjoyable life and to have that available for future generations. And I think that if we can base our work around those values and those principles and be open to learning, to be open to new systems, to be open to sharing power, that's what's going to change the world. This love story, it's what we do every day. It's the decisions that we make. It's our our intention and our awareness and our commitment to action. And I think that it's really important for people to get out there and to have those experiences on the land, to put that time and commitment into learning where they're from, to upholding and protecting these beautiful wild places or to restoring places that have been impacted. We can't abandon these places that have been you know, polluted or who have been harmed, just like we wouldn't abandon a, a family member who needs our support and who needs our our attention. And so if we can have those values guide our work and to be creative and to try things and to really be bold, we, we don't have time to be careful and cautious. We have to be really bold in our actions. And I think people know deep down what they need to do and finding that bravery and that inspiration. All you have to do is spend a bit of time and out there in the wild, on the land, or even if you're in the city, to really see that the planet needs us, our children need us, so it's really an honor to be able to do this work and to come at it from that perspective, I think shifts things a lot and takes back that power. And that's an incredible thing. I'd like to take a moment to extend my deepest gratitude to Nuskmata Jacinda Mack for generously opening her home to me and offering her time, open spirit, and honest reflections for the making of this episode. It has been such an honor to learn from this wise woman artist, musician, mother, and meet along the path as we weave ancient and new worlds into being. Since this interview, Nuskamata has left First Nations women advocating responsible mining and joined the team at Maddie Lee in northern BC, an Indigenous-led team that has regained control and occupation of their traditional lands in Gitkasan territory on the Skeena River. To learn more about their work in Indigenous systems change, ancestral governance, and cultural revitalization programs, please visit MaddieLee.com. That's M-A-D-I-I-L-I-I.com. We also request that you consider supporting local and Indigenous communities on the front lines of metal and mineral mining, those working to radically transform the mining industry to preserve the wildlands, and watersheds of sacred lands everywhere. As a starting point, check out First Nations Women Advocating Responsible Mining, Fair Mining Collaborative, Salmon Beyond Borders, BC Mining Law Reform, and Mining Injustice Solidarity Network. Lastly, wherever this podcast reaches you, we encourage you to get more involved in local mining, resource extraction, and land defense issues. Here are a few pressing projects we've been following that we hope you'll take the time to learn more about. First, as mentioned earlier, the Palmer Project, a proposed copper, zinc, gold, and silver mine, is sited at the headwaters of the Chilkat River on unceded Chilkat Clinkett territory. Second, the proposed open pit copper and gold pebble mine in Bristol Bay, southwest Alaska, threatens the world's greatest sockeye salmon run and the lifeways of local residents and indigenous communities. Third, Imperial Metals has recently applied for a five-year permit in the Skagit headwaters that, if approved by the BC government, will see the building of an access road, surface trenches, drill pads, and exploratory pits up to 2,000 meters deep amid sensitive populations of grizzlies, bull trout, and bald eagles. Finally, on February 23rd, Tech Resources withdrew its application to build a $20 billion Tech Frontier mine, the largest ever open pit tar sands mine sited on Diné and Cree territory in so-called Alberta. This win is a direct reflection of the tireless work spearheaded by Indigenous-led campaigns and frontline communities. 
We know all such victories are temporary while industries exist, so we must be non-negotiable in our solidarity with these wild places and those who are most beholden to their defense. Please visit our website at forthewild.world for a full list of links, resources, and action points. Thank you for listening to For the Wild podcast in the Field Edition. I'm Ayana Young. The music you heard today was Jug in the Water by Carrie Morin, Dirty Water by Compassion Gorilla, Ghost by Lynx and the Servants of Song, Fauna Lingua by the Malaman Collective, Golden Age by the Mina Birds, and This Machine by the Honey Tongues. I'd like to thank our podcast production team, Aidan McRae, Carter Lou McElroy, Erica Ekram, Aaron Wise, Francesca Glassbell, Hannah Wilton, March Young, and Melanie Younger. Just